You can grab a seat uh, and welcome. Uh, I couldn't help but notice during Michael's uh, impromptu poll earlier that only one of us went to retreat. Well, I went as well. Did we, was it just one? How many people went to retreat this past weekend? One, two, three, four, five. Nice. Just four of us were late. That's cool. But uh, five of us went to retreat. Six. I was there. Uh, we had a college retreat this weekend. It was super, super fun. Uh, the highlight of the weekend, I thought, was laser tag, uh, which you would think, what are you, three? But I'm not. I'm a man. And I still like laser tag. So I'm a real man. Uh, but it was, it was really a blast. And so I would encourage you, man, we're going to have something uh, not exactly like that in the spring, but we'll have another opportunity to kind of come together as, as one large group, as a, as a college ministry. And I would encourage you to just be thinking about it. Uh, maybe let that seed plant in your brain right now. It's not going to, you know, have a chance to germinate for about five months, but give it time and water it with... <laughs> coffee? I don't know. I don't know what you give uh, mind seeds, but give it something uh, and maybe be thinking about it uh, because the reality is that, I mean, it was a wonderful weekend where, where we got to know each other, uh, where we grew closer to one another. Man, I met a lot of students that I hadn't met yet, uh, and it was just a really fun opportunity. And because of this retreat, uh, I was actually planning on this evening being a lot different than what it's actually going to be. Uh, leading up to this week, uh, I was uh, expecting that we would have another speaker come in. Uh, I had a buddy up in Dallas I was going to bring down uh, but he didn't work out. Uh, and then we were going to use someone else from kind of in-house in, within Grace. And uh, we asked four different guys and none of them could do it. Uh, and so we uh, kind of got to this point where we're like, well, I guess, uh, I guess, Jacob, you're just going to have to man up and come back early and speak in the morning and evening. I was like, okay. Uh, but then even when I decided that, I was like, well, what am I, what am I going to speak on? Like, I, I haven't been prepping anything. Like, I always expected this to be an off week. Uh, and so I was thinking and praying and studying, uh, I realized uh, that basically God had lined up this week uh, to make up for a disappointment that I felt about mm, two months ago. At the very beginning of the semester, uh, my hope and my, my plan was to actually do this talk, or at least to go into this subject and talk about this, uh, this idea and this person. Uh, but the reality is that the Lord just kind of worked it out differently, where we, we skipped straight into just the text and, and talking about what it, the book was all about. And so really, I, I'm excited about this evening. Uh, we're going to be talking about the life of Solomon, uh, who we have been reading uh, somewhat about, right, also semester. We've been looking at the Song of Songs, and we've been uh, reading about these relationships, and we know that Solomon is somehow connected to it, right? When we saw the very opening of the book, it's called, it calls itself the Song of Songs, then something Solomon, right? It's that one Hebrew word that we're like, I don't really know how they're connected. And so it could be according to Solomon. It could be by Solomon. It could be for Solomon. Uh, it could be in the style of Solomon. And so we don't know exactly how he winds up connected to this book. Uh, my best guess is that he's a contributor as well as a compiler, meaning that he wrote some of these songs and that he also gathered some of the songs from surrounding authors, the same way that Proverbs was created. Uh, but what we know and trust in the midst of Whatever happened, that the ultimate author was God, right? The, the Lord, that through the Holy Spirit, uh, inspired these words, wrote them down, uh, gave them to us as, as knowable, uh, trustable truth. And so what we've seen, though, is Solomon somehow connected. And so I wanted us to kind of take a moment to look at who he was, kind of look at who this guy is, understand what made him tick, right? Because if we're reading all these things that he's somehow connected to, what... What, what's the source of our study look like? 
And in order to really understand who Solomon is, we have to go even further back in time to when I was in kindergarten, okay? When Jacob was a young five-year-old in kindergarten at a small private school. And uh, in that moment, in that age, uh, I had a rival, a girl by the name of Amanda. Uh, Amanda. And Amanda and I had this intense, bitter rivalry. And there was something in between us that we just could not reconcile. Uh, Looking back, I think what it really was, was Amanda uh, was a girl. And and she wouldn't change that. And I didn't know why. And so we just had that irreconcilable difference, right? When when you're looking at a kindergarten feud, that's the only criteria that needs to be met. She was a girl. Well, it's on, right? And so because of that, uh, I saw her one day on the playground. She was at the top of one of our slides, and I realized that that was the day. That was my time that I was going to take our rivalry to the next level. That was the moment when I was going to lay an ambush for Amanda, where I placed rocks, right? So our, our playground was covered in small rocks, right? We didn't have the sissy, like, spongy stuff or, like, mulch. We had rocks, right? We played on rocks. And so I picked up those rocks and I laid them out on the bottom of the slide strategically so that when she slid down, it would just rake the bottom of her legs. And then I picked up two other handfuls of rocks and waited in anticipation. And sure enough, she slid down, slid over my gravel trap and cries out in pain. And as soon as she's, ah, I just launched my two handfuls of pebbles straight at just her face. And she gets pelted with all these other pebbles. Ah, she's just crying out in just greater pain. And she stands up and she's kind of trying to brush rocks off and sees me and her eyes just get, you know, red and just probably just from tears because we're five. But she's looking at me and she says, Jacob, Jacob, that's it. She says, I'm going to, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell the teacher. And in that moment, I kind of froze. Right, and I immediately kind of responded with, "Hey, hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, let's let's slow it down, let's pump the brakes, right?" I said, "Amanda, look, why why do you want to tell the teacher?" She says, "You hurt me." She says, "You hurt me with your rocks. You threw, my legs are scratched. You hit me with these rocks. I'm going to tell the teacher because you hurt me with these rocks." And I said, "Well, Amanda, here's the thing, girl. When you screamed in pain." It was so loud that it hurt my ears. (laughs) And so I think I might have to go tell the teacher on you for yelling so loudly that it hurt my ears. You know, because I'm a a liar, right? So that's why I said that. And so she kind of takes it and and analyzes it for a moment and kind of in her five-year-old mind decided, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And so we both agreed... (laughs) We both agreed to not tell the teacher on one another. And we just <laughs> parted ways. And that was the end of that. Uh, and I uh, look back on that. And I'm like, my gosh, like, why? Like, why did I do that? Right? Why did she give in to that? Why were neither of us telling the teacher? It's because I was a terrible person, right? That's just the summation of it. I was a terrible and broken person. And the reality is that, man, I was like that at five. And I was like that every single moment of the rest of my life. The reality is that I'm a person who's broken. I'm a person who's lied and I've cheated and I've stolen. I'm a person who's fallen into addiction. I've fallen into substance abuse. I've fallen into uh, pride and selfishness and lust, jealousy, anger, I've fallen into so many things that are are wrong and bring death rather than life. 
I've failed at being a good husband. I've failed at being a good friend. And I've failed at being a good minister. I'm a broken person. So why am I here? It's the question we should ask. Why am I standing here in front of you while you're sitting, looking at me, listening to me? Why? I'm broken. Man, I'm messed up. Why am I in this position to be uh, explaining the word of God? Why am I in this position to be giving advice on relationships all semester? Why am I in this position to be leading students like yourself towards God? Why am I here in this moment? And the reality is that, man, we're all broken people. The reality is that we've all failed on some level, probably multiple times today. We fail and we fall and we're broken and we experience pain. We cause pain. So why are we in positions to be giving advice to friends? Why are we in positions to be leading organizations? Why are we in positions to be starting romantic relationships with the goal of marrying this person, joining ourselves to another individual for life? Why are we in that position? Why are you in this position to be sitting here either seeking after a relationship or claiming to have a relationship with the God of the universe? Who are you? Who am I to be in this position? leadership, blessing, whatever it is. We've been studying the Song of Songs all semester in an attempt to understand God's original design, God's perfect design for relationships. But like I said, this evening we're, we're switching gears. We're taking a step back. And we're looking at this guy named Solomon who's connected to this book. And when we look at his life, when we look at who he was and what he did, we're going to realize that he was incredibly broken. And when we look at what God gave him, when we look at the position he achieved, we're going to be asking ourselves, why? Why is he where he was? Why did God give him what he was given? Why did God bless him in the ways that he blessed him with wealth and power and prestige and honor and wisdom? Why did God give him these things when he's so incredibly broken? Why would we read anything remotely connected to this destructive, broken man? And what we see What we're going to see this evening is an answer to that question. We're going to find as we look into his life, we're going to find why he was where he was. And it's not only going to help us understand Solomon's position, it's going to help us understand our own. And it's going to be awesome. And I love this. This is my favorite thing, man. Character studies, narratives like this. This is my favorite thing to unpack. And I'm I'm just so excited for tonight. I really, really am. And and we're going to be in 1 Kings. So if you have a Bible, if there's one near you that you can see on the ground or in a chair, you can grab it. We're in 1 Kings chapter 1. And while you're flipping there, 
Now, let me just give you a quick recap. In case you weren't with us in the spring, uh, we studied the whole life of David. And we walked through kind of who he was, what he did. Uh, We found out how David was a man after God's own heart and what that meant and how that played out and how we can emulate that in our own lives. And as soon as David uh, basically just, or just to give you a really quick recap of his life, basically David was a young dude. And he was walking along and a prophet popped up and prophet said, David, you're going to be king. And David's like, oh, cool. But then the current king, Saul, was like, I don't want him to be king. And so he tries to murder David like lots of times. And he fails though. And so David eventually becomes king. And so David is king. And while he's king, he does some good things. He does some bad things. It's all over the place. And then eventually he gets old and he's going to die. Okay, that's what happens to all of us. Spoiler alert. And so we find out in King, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5, uh, David is old. He's about to die. And so we come to this point where, well, we need a new king, right? Someone else is going to have to step up. And so Adonijah is the guy to step up. He's the son of Haggith and he exalted himself and he said, I will be king. And so he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father, David, had never at any time displeased him by asking, what have you done thus and so? And he was also a very handsome man. He was born next after Absalom. So we see the son of David... And he's basically pulling up, right, Adonijah. And he says, I will fill in the gap, right? I will, I will become king, right? It will be my duty. I'm happy to take on this heavy burden, wear the heavy crown, and I will be king. And so he gets chariots and horsemen and the 50 guys that run in front of you because, you know, standard king stuff, I guess. And so he uh, is setting this all up and David never contradicts it. David never says, hey, Adonijah, let's, let's slow it down. Uh, instead, he's just like, okay, whatever. And so Adonijah's like, sweet, I'm going to be king. Uh, but there's a problem. And that problem is that Bathsheba, one of David's wives, uh, and Nathan, the prophet of the Lord in Israel at that time, both go to David and they remind him of a promise that David had made years before. Years and years before, he made a promise to Bathsheba saying, uh, your son, Bathsheba, will be king. Right? So he had a lot of kids with a lot of different women. One of David's biggest problems. And he had this one son named Solomon. And he told, and that was Bathsheba's son. And so he says, Bathsheba, I'm going to make Solomon king. And they remind him of that. So Bathsheba and Nathan, they go to David. They're like, look, Adonijah can't be king because you said that Solomon would take that place. And so David says, oh my gosh, you're right. And so he brings Solomon into the palace, anoints him, does all this crazy stuff. Says, okay, now you're king. Which then leads to my favorite uh, party awkward ending in the Bible. In verse 49, uh, where all the gifts of Adonijah at his king party are like, oh, snap. And so they tremble and they rise and they each go their own way. It's like, you're not going to be king. And now I can't stop shaking because they were terrified. Because if you were trying to raise up another king contrary to the current king's wishes, man, it's treason. And so Adonijah was scared for his life. And so he goes before Solomon and apologizes like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And Solomon's like, it's okay. Just don't do anything stupid. But then Adonijah goes and does stupid stuff. And so then Solomon kills him, uh, which is really funny. Uh, and <laughs> we should really talk about it one day because he uses this assassin uh, by the name of Benaiah, uh, who's just like crazy. He's like Darth Maul from Star Wars, basically, because he like kills all these people. Anyway, that is a side note. So anyway, so we see Solomon rise to power. Okay, that's the point. So we see Solomon and he rises. There's all this drama, but he gets there, right? He becomes king. And so because of all this drama, he's a little nervous, right? He's a little self-conscious. He's like, man, I don't know. Like, is this where I'm supposed to be? Was it supposed to be Adonijah? The guy was so handsome. Like, I don't know. And so he is feeling uh, burdened by his, by his position. And so the Lord goes to him in a dream. And the Lord appears to Solomon. He says, look, Solomon, man, you, you're the man. You're my guy. 
You're leading my people. And so I want to help you and equip you in the way that you need me to help you and equip you. So he asks Solomon, he says, what do you want? What can I give you in this moment? Solomon, anything you want, any request you make, it's yours. And so Solomon speaks back to the Lord, responds and says, Oh Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out. I don't know how to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Solomon's saying, God, I, I am so in over my head. I'm so in out of my league. God, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And so God, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for power. He could have asked for, I don't know, invulnerability, Hulk, Iron Man suit. He could have asked for anything he wanted. And yet he asked God for the one thing that would help him do his job better. He doesn't just ask for wisdom because he thinks that's like a really holy thing to ask for. He asks for wisdom because he says, that's what I need to do my job. That's what I want. Like if you saw a, a barista and he's talking to God, and he's like, and God says, anything you want. And the priest says, all I want is just a deeper V-neck, right? Because that will some, navel, right? That's what I want. Because somehow that will make me better at my job, I'm assuming. That's why they do it. But he's saying, like, I want whatever it takes so that I can excel at what I've already been given as a responsibility. Solomon says, I want to be better at what I'm doing. So give me that wisdom. And God is so pleased with this. God is so honored by this request. And so he responds to Solomon. He's so pleased. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And so God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I'm going to give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. God says, Solomon, I'm so pleased with your request. I'm so honored by what you want that I'm gonna give you not only what you ask for, I'm gonna give it to you in such abundance that there will be no one before you who is as wise. And Solomon, there's gonna be no one after you for all of eternity who is as wise as you, Solomon. And more than that, I'm going to give you riches and honor and power. I'm going to lift you to this point where there is no king, no ruler before you who has been greater. And Solomon, there will be no one after you who's ever greater. Solomon is the greatest, most powerful, most affluent, most respected leader that we've ever seen in this world. And he will be. God promised it. God is so pleased with Solomon's request that he just gets to that like Oprah level of crazy blessing, right? You get wisdom and you, right? He's just throwing it out there. So Psalm, I'm going to give you everything you asked for and more, things you wouldn't have even thought to ask for. But then he says, but Solomon, remember, as I'm giving you these gifts, there's one thing. I want you to walk in my ways, be, to be keeping my statutes, my commandments, as your father David walked. And then, Solomon, if you do these things. If you walk in these ways and keep these statutes, I will lengthen your days. 
God's saying, Solomon, if you can just continue to walk in obedience, God, Solomon, if you can grab these gifts and hold them tight and use them in the way that they're meant to be used, then I will lengthen your days. I will continue to bless you, continue to build you up. And Solomon says, absolutely, let's go for it. And so God starts to bless Solomon. And we see in 1 Kings just incredible outlines of how uh, powerful he becomes. We find out that Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon increased the borders of Israel to the maximum increase they've ever had, right? David, his father, was the big warrior king who was just great in battle and conquered all these people and conquered all these nations and fought off all these bad guys. And everyone loved him and they respected him. And he expanded Israel's borders. And they were like, oh man, Israel can't get bigger than this. But then Solomon steps in, doesn't even have to fight a battle just because of who he is, just because of his character and his wisdom and the honor that people just supernaturally were giving to him. He increases Israel's borders. Not only does he increase it, but the countries that he's bumping up against, while he doesn't rule over them, they love him so much that they just start sending him gifts of gold and animals and and wood and all this crazy stuff. Because they love him and they respect him. They see just something special about who he was. And so they, they just want to send him tributes. He's not threatening them or, or ruling over them. He, they just want to bless him because they love him. Solomon expands Israel in a way that no one expected, that we've never seen since. It'd be like if Rick Perry went on the radio tonight or TV. That makes more sense. He goes on the TV tonight and says, hey, Louisiana, Oklahoma, they're ours, right? We'd be like, oh my gosh, yes. Like, that would be so exciting. Maybe we'd want like Hawaii instead, but that's fine. You know, we'd be like, okay, I'll take it. Louisiana has alligators. And so we would be excited about that though, right? We would say, yeah, Texas, God bless America, bald eagles, right? We'd be so excited because we would love to see that expansion, right? That increase in power. Solomon brings that to Israel. They're looking at him like, oh my gosh, this guy's amazing. Not only does he have this power, but we see that he is given incredible wisdom by the Lord. Chapter four goes on and it tells us that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs, that his songs, he wrote over a thousand songs. He wrote 1,005. I love how exact that is. A thousand and five songs. Solomon reigned for about 40 years. 40 years he was king over Israel. And in that time, he wrote all these proverbs, all these songs. Uh, If you do the math, this means that over those 40 years, he wrote one song or one proverb every three days. So one every three days for 40 years was his output. Right? You can manage to write like one good Twitter post like a month, right? Like that's it. And you get like two favorites and one retweet by your mom. And that's, that's kind of it, right? That's kind of where we get to. Uh, Solomon, every three days put out just like golden nuggets uh, of wisdom or of, of songs, of poetry. People are seeing this they're like, oh my gosh, this man, his wisdom is incredible. It's incredible. He has all this power, man. He's got all this wisdom. He has all this wealth. We find out that uh, Solomon, the king, he made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. He made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. Right? I know what you're thinking. You're like, dang, the Shephelah sycamore? No way. Come on, right? Like, nah. 
Nautocephalus. Yeah. Shuffle of sycamores, right? What do we see here? We're seeing that Solomon had such great wealth. We find out that if we kept reading, we would see that in his uh, palace, uh, they only drank and ate off of gold. Every cup, every plate was solid gold because the people in, his, in Israel at that time, they began to think that silver just wasn't even that great. Like silver was so common that they didn't even consider it valuable anymore. They would see your locket from James Avery and they'd be like, eh, whatever, right? Because they don't care. Silver is nothing to them. Solid gold. He had such incredible wealth. Maybe because these people, these other rulers are sending him tribute. Uh, people have tried to crunch the numbers. Uh, you know, people have tried to look up like, man, how much is he really worth? Like, what was his net worth? Like, how much money was Solomon really bringing in? And I did a lot of research, tried to find answers. And I'm telling you, every single scholar, they're like, they're trying to look it up. And they're like, oh, no, doesn't, my calculator broke. I can't do it. Like, there's just too much. It's unfathomable how much he was worth. Uh, one of the things that they managed to break down is they, they counted up the amount of gold. Okay, just the amount of gold that people would send him. This is not counting his storehouses, his inheritance, uh, what they brought about in Israel, uh, the other gifts and things that people would send him. Just the gold that people would send him per year was worth about $1.1 billion okay, every single year. Just, just gold. Just, just the gold. The most wealthy man in the world right now, Bill Gates, holding fast to that number one spot. Go Bill, right? He's been there for a long time. Bill's up there. He's worth $81 billion. As of right now, Bill Gates is worth $81 billion. B, B, billion, like Beyonce, billion dollars. And Bill Gates, just to put that in perspective, if you're worth $81 billion, that means that Bill Gates could take a million dollars in cash, just set it on his lawn and light it on fire. And he could do that every day, okay? Every single day, a million dollars for 222 years. And then you'd finally be out. You'd be like, oh, well, that was it, right? That, that would be the end. 222 years, million dollars a day. Solomon, by our best estimates, was worth way more than that. Man, that's what he was bringing in like every couple years. Like Solomon was worth so much. There's been no one like him. There will be no one like him. His power, his wisdom, his wealth. And he took these gifts and he said, my gosh, like the Lord has blessed me so greatly. And so what I want to do is I want to build for the Lord a temple. And so what Solomon does is he tells the Lord, I'm going to build you a house. And God gives him some guidelines. He says, okay, we'll do this and this and this. So Solomon goes out and he takes what the Lord gave him. He does those things, but he goes above and beyond. And he spends seven years building a temple for God. Seven years employing 200,000 workers. 200,000 workers. College Station times two was working on this one building for seven years. It was magnificent. Just amazing. He builds this for the Lord because he says, God, I I recognize that these things came from you. Solomon takes the designer, the guy that helped him kind of organize everything, basically his general contractor that was on, on on point for that temple building. He takes that guy and when they finish the temple and all that stuff, he's so proud, he's so happy with his contractor that he pays that guy 20 cities. Cities is what he uses to pay him. Here's the Brazos Valley. Thank you. Right? That's how he did. He gave him 20 cities as payment because this guy did such a great job. 
And so Solomon has created this amazing work for the Lord. And what we see in this moment is Solomon in the highest position this world has ever seen. And yet even in that moment, even as we see him blessed beyond measure with all these gifts from the Lord, even in that moment, we see a storm begin to gather on the horizon. Even in the midst of all this movement and this wisdom and this wealth and this power, what we see is Solomon breaking kind of little rules or breaking big rules, but in little ways that the Lord set forth. The, the Lord told the kings of Israel, he says, look, I don't want you to have a big standing army. You don't need it. I am your army. You don't need a bunch of dudes or chariots or horses. You don't need it. You can rely on me. But yet Solomon was like, ah, and he builds for himself a pretty sizable army. God told the kings, he told actually all the people of Israel, don't marry people from other nations. Not because they were in fear anywhere, or because God's racist or anything like that. He's just saying, look, I don't want you to marry these people from other nations because those people don't follow me. Those people have false gods and false idols, so don't marry them. And yet we see Solomon, his very first marriage is to an Egyptian. It's to the Pharaoh's daughter because he wanted to build an alliance with Egypt. So he's breaking that. We see that even though he spent seven years on God's house, Solomon builds his own personal palace, spends 13 years on that one. 13 years on his own home. Almost double what he spent on the Lord. And so Solomon is treading on thin ice, right? He's starting to move towards some dangerous ground. And we, we see, it, and then the Lord sees it. And so the Lord steps into Solomon and he appears to him. Because as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, the king's house and all that he desired to build, as soon as he finishes all this awesome stuff, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, just as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And so the Lord shows up and he says to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. And I've consecrated this house, this temple that you've built. I have put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time, Solomon. And as for you, Solomon, again, reminding him, exact same wording. If you will walk before me as David, your father, walked with integrity of heart, uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David, your father, saying you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. God comes back to Solomon, reminds him of his calling. He says, look, Solomon, I love what you've been doing. I love what you've done. Just to remind you, buddy, Look, this is what I expect of you. This is what I desire from you. This is what I ask of you. This is what I call you to do. Walk in my ways. Keep these commandments. Have integrity within your heart, right? He adds on to that first warning, right? Remember his very first warning, really, really short. This one, he's starting to add a little bit more, just kind of reminding Solomon, kind of helping him see, okay, yeah, yeah, this is, this is how that actually plays out. And then he adds on not just fleshing out the call, but he also tells Solomon in this moment of the consequences if he fails. He says, but Solomon, if you turn aside from following me, if you or your children, if, if they turn aside, if they do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but if you go and you serve other gods and you worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, the house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house, this temple, this thing that you spent seven years, 200,000 laborers, 
20 cities to pay the contractor, that temple will become a heap of ruins. And everyone passing by will be astonished and they'll hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land, to this house? And they will say, because these people, these Israelites, they abandoned the Lord, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt. Instead, they laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. God tells Solomon, watch it, man. Watch it. I want you to obey. And Solomon, if you don't, my punishment, my justice will be quick and it will be severe and a whole nation will suffer. Solomon, all of these people that you rule and love, these people shouting your name and singing your praises, Solomon, all of those people will be cut off from their homes. Solomon, all those people will be conquered and destroyed if you turn away from me. And Solomon hears this warning, processes it, and ignores it. And what we see in Solomon's life is from this moment, he begins to increase his power and his armies more. We see him move, not just from that first Egyptian wife. We see him then uh, build a desire, a love in his heart for the women of all these surrounding nations. And the scripture tells us that he literally does not withhold his love from them, his desire, his lusts for them. He doesn't hold it back. He just lets it run. And to the point where he has 700 wives, 300 concubines, over a thousand women, Solomon turns into just his own personal sexual objects. Over a thousand women. Solomon amasses for himself these wives who then bring in other gods. And what we see is Solomon seeing, recognizing their gods, and not only just sort of, you know, being like letting the gods kind of slide into Israel and just not fighting. Not only does he not fight the, against the spread of these gods and this, this other worship, instead he embraces it. And he begins to worship these other gods, these false idols, these man-made creations. He begins worshiping them. He begins making sacrifices to them. We see Solomon begin to build temples for these other false gods. The same way that he built this magnificent home, this magnificent structure for the one true God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who saved him, who gifted him, who gave him all these things. Solomon then takes that same attitude and he applies it to all these other gods and he builds them houses and he worships them and he sacrifices on their altars. And what we see is Solomon straying to such an extreme that he takes all of these gifts that God had given him and he makes those gifts his new gods. And he falls so hard that the Lord appears to him a third time. And he says to Solomon, since this has been your practice, and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you 
and I will give it to your servant. Solomon, I keep my promises. You've strayed, and so my judgment is coming. But for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. At which point we imagine we hear across the house, Thanks, Dad. That's a bummer. God says, you know what, Solomon? I promised all this swift justice, all this harsh punishment. And you know what? I'm going to keep that promise. But yet, even in the midst of that penalty, I'm going to give you some grace. I'm going to give you some mercy. I'm going to wait. And sure enough, Solomon goes through the rest of his life. And he's fine. He has a few rebels rise up, right? We see God actually raise up uh, adversaries against Solomon. Uh, We see guys like uh, Hadad, a guy who rose up in Israel, uh, grew this animosity towards Solomon, flees over to Egypt, and then is basically uh, uh, an attacking force against Solomon from Egypt for the rest of his life. Uh, We see this guy named uh, Rezin uh, who rises up, goes to Syria, uh, is taken in by the king there, kind of rules over Syria, uses Syria to attack Israel uh, for the rest of the time. And then we see uh, my favorite, a guy named Jeroboam, who's a young guy in Israel, just kind of walking down the road. Prophet pops up in front of him, takes his shirt off, rips it into 10 pieces and says, Jeroboam, you're going to be king. And then he's gone. Like he just just goes away. Jeroboam's like, cool. Awesome. Let's do it. And so he just doesn't know, he doesn't know how to process the information. He's like, I guess I'm going to be king. God says I'm going to be king. And Solomon hears about it. And Solomon decides, no, I don't, I don't want him to be king. And so he tries to murder Jeroboam over and over and over again until Jeroboam has to flee through the wilderness and hide from Solomon time after time after time. Until eventually Jeroboam does become the next king and rules over 10 tribes of Israel, which sounds really familiar. Because that's exactly what happened to Solomon's dad. And all of a sudden, we see Solomon go full circle, where he's this man who's walking, who's gifted, who's in this beautiful movement and, and bringing so much glory to the Lord. And yet all of a sudden, he turns into Saul, the despised king of Israel. The one who, when he saw his power begin to float away, when he saw David anointed as the next king, he wouldn't let it happen. Or he didn't want to let it happen. And so he tried to kill David over and over and over again. Solomon is doing that. Solomon has become the man that everyone's called the foolish king. Solomon, the most wise, has fallen. And he grasps after that power and he tries to hold on to it. And he describes that process in Ecclesiastes as someone trying to grab the air. It's pointless. It's vanity. It's frustratingly pointless. But in the midst of that failure, there's still a little bit of grace. And sure enough, Solomon, even in the midst of those adversaries, he dies on his fancy bed in his awesome palace, still king. A lot of worry in the world. Why? Why? God knew that Solomon was going to make these mistakes. God knew that Solomon was going to fail so hard. God knew that Solomon was broken. And yet he gave Solomon this position. He left him in that position, even in the midst of his failure, his public failure. And he's still known as the greatest king of all time. Why? Why? 
What did Solomon do to deserve that? We go back. We look before Solomon was even born. And we see a moment when God is speaking to Solomon's father, David. And God is saying to David that when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. In other words, when 1 Kings chapter 1 comes around. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. David, your throne shall be established forever. Why did God give Solomon that position? Why did he leave Solomon in that position? What did Solomon do? Nothing. Nothing. He was broken. Why was he in that position? Because God chose him because God decided to give him that position. Because before Solomon was even around, before he existed, God chose him and decided, I'm going to use this broken person for my purpose. Because when we look through time, when we look through history, when we look through scripture, we see a God who loves to use broken people for his purpose. Broken people for his beautiful purpose. That's why we see a God who works through prostitutes like Rahab, through uh, murderers like David, through adulterers like Solomon in establishing a line and a royal lineage that eventually leads to Jesus Christ, who stepped out of heaven and onto earth so that he might live a perfect life that we cannot live, so that he would die the death that we all deserved, so that he could pay the penalty for our sin and for our brokenness. And that when he rose three days later, He proved his power and authority over sin, over death, over brokenness. He proved that no matter how broken or how much of a failure you are, that his love and grace and power is bigger, is greater. God did this. God continues to do this. God uses broken people all the time, which should excite us and make us grateful because the reality is that even as we look at Solomon and just think about how much of a failure he is and, and notice just how great his disobedience is, man, the reality is that our disobedience is just as great and yet we're just better at hiding it. The reality is that we all increase our own power through lying and manipulation, pitting roommate against roommate or friend against friend or, or prof against student or whatever it is. We move and we act and, and we try to bring people into certain places or manipulate their emotions to where we feel more power in that moment, where we have more authority over their life or over our own life. We go out and we 
turn men and women into sexual objects, either in person, or maybe it's just an image of them in the media, in pornography, and we lust and fantasize after these people. And it probably gets up into the thousands, just like Solomon. The reality is that we all have those idols and those gods that are false and broken that lead to death and yet we worship them. We chase after that idol of wealth or or status or academics or relationships or achievements or, or moralism. And we go after these idols and these gods and we build them little houses in our lives. And we're no better than Solomon. So why are we here? Why do we have our positions? Why can we claim to know the God of the universe? Why am I here standing on this stage? Because God's Holy Spirit chose to convict me of my brokenness in Mrs. Brown's K4 classroom. Showed me my sin. Showed me that I could not fix it on my own. Showed me the beauty of the gospel, that free eternal life is given to all who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm here because God's Holy Spirit chose to grab a hold of my heart when I was in 11th grade and I was living a life that was headed for ruin. And he pulled me up and he turned me around and he set me on a different path. I'm here because the impact camp before my freshman year, God's Holy Spirit chose to grab a hold of my mind and my future and he redirected it and he showed me that he was calling me to a life in full-time vocational ministry. I'm here because God's grace is sufficient for me even when I continue to fail. I'm here because God's power and strength is made perfect in my weakness. The reality is that we are all here because God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you've been saved and raised up. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why does God take a bunch of dead people, a bunch of broken people, and save them and work through them? Why? So that he can just show the universe how great he is, how great his kindness is, his grace, his love, his power. That's why we're here. So as we sing a couple more songs, as we go before the Lord in worship, I would just encourage you to be thinking about your position. Some of you, man, you don't have a relationship with God. Some of you are still just immersed in brokenness and death. And I would beg you to come talk to me. I'm going to be in the back. A few other leaders will be in the back during this time. We'll be praying for you. Come talk to us. Ask us questions. Tell us what we can be praying for. If that's you, man, you've got the biggest decision of your life right in your face right now. Talk to me about it. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to think about that position 
and think about where are you just forgetting God's grace? Where are you forgetting God's mercy and forgiveness? Where are you just building guilt up on your shoulders and letting it weigh you down? Where are you ignoring conviction and instead chasing after another God, another idol? We're broken, but God uses broken people. So let's pray. Lord, we, God, we we just thank you for how great you are. Lord, we thank you for the gift that you've given us, the gift that's greater than all the wealth and wisdom and power that you ever even gave Solomon. God, we thank you for the gift that is eternal life. If you would take a moment and just reflect on that position. Again, if, if you are not in a relationship with God through Christ, think about that. Talk to the Lord about that. Talk to me about that. If you would, uh, if you do have that relationship, take this moment, pray to the Lord, ask him again to just show you where are you forgetting his love? Where are you ignoring his call? Ask him those things right now.